morning, New Spring. Why don't you go ahead and stand up and sing with us? There's no space that his love can't reach. There's no place that we can't find peace. There's no end to amazing grace.
good to hear you guys sing. Let's just keep praising, let's keep worshiping God. He's an amazing guy.
Okay, ever since I've been planning this series, I knew that this week and next week were going to be two of the toughest messages I'd ever preach because they just require a lot of, a lot of serious thinking. And I don't have a great brain, and so it's a challenge for me to preach these messages. It's because we're going to piece together things that God has to say about the future. When I started this series weeks ago, I shared with you that one-fourth of your Bible is God telling the future. God does something that no world religion does, and he tells the future. And what I mean by that is God tells the future both with specificity, both with a great amount of time, and with reality. For instance, we could predict things tomorrow that would probably come true. If you said, I believe I'm going to get up and go to work in the morning, well, that would be a kind of prophecy, but that would be based on your habits. It would be based on likelihoods, the law of averages, and your intentions. So if you say, I'm going to work in the morning, that is a kind of prophecy, but not Bible prophecy. If I talk about something that's going to happen in 500 years, now we're talking about something very different. And God does that kind of prophecy. He predicts with certainty things that are going to happen in the distant future. And no world religion, regardless of how signature they believe they are, they don't, they don't go into that future thing. So when we look at what the Bible has to say, a fourth of the Bible is prophecy, God foretelling the future. But it's a little bit challenging sometimes to study prophecy, which is what we're doing this summer in the book of Daniel. There are times when God says very clearly, X is going to happen. Well, we can take that to the bank. If God spells it out and there's a location in the Bible where we can find a statement where God's, God clearly says what's going to happen, that's pretty simple. Uh, as the old timers used to say, that's a thus saith the word kind of thing. And then there are times when a composite forms. We, we see what God says in this book and we see what God says in this book and another book and we see these statements that God makes and we do our detective work and then we say, okay, we understand what God is saying about the future. 
And then there are times when we get hints. I rarely ever preach these hints because I don't know for sure if I'm clearly seeing what God is saying, but I strongly feel that God is showing us something that's very likely to happen. With that complexity, someone could ask the question, why should we study prophecy? It's a good question because there are a lot of churches today, especially mega churches, that are staying away from prophecy just because of this complexity issue. And there's no doubt about it. The Bible gives us preachers and pastors, teachers, plenty to talk about without talking about prophecy. So all of that raises the question, why am I doing it? Why are we spending the summer talking about prophecy? And beyond that, why are we looking at the difficult book of Daniel? Because Daniel is a challenging book, and that's where we are this summer. Why are we doing that? Well, I want to give you three reasons why I feel like it's important for us to do what is going to be a difficult study today and next week. First of all, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is pretty, pretty low. Maybe we could call these good, better, and best reasons. But first of all, it's interesting. We human beings are curious. We want to know what's going to happen in the future. So even if I weren't necessarily a committed God follower, I would still be interested in knowing what's going to happen in the future. Well, that's a good reason, but not a great one. Here's a better reason. It's the same reason, we study prophecy for the same reason you get the weather forecast before you take off on a cross-country trip in the winter here in Kansas, because you want to know how to make good decisions. And consequently, as we study Bible prophecy, it gives us a sense of what's going on. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how anybody would hope to make any sense out of the world that we're living in right now without Bible prophecy giving a context for it. I said this the first week, and I'll say it again. The world as we know it, and if you saw me pause, I was really wanting to say America as we know it, cannot continue. It is not sustainable. It, it's, it, it cannot continue as it's going right now. Something is going to happen. So I just don't know how a person would be able to process what's happening in our world, in our country today, without having some sense of Bible prophecy. I mean, you got to have some hooks to hang your hats on. And when I think about Bible prophecy, it gives me those hooks to hang my questions on in regard to the times that we're living in. But that's still not the best reason uh, for us to study prophecy. I want us to know God's reason because God clearly has a purpose in giving us a fourth of this book and prophecy. And he clearly has a reason for us that supersedes all others in why we would do this difficult exercise today and next week of trying to make sense of a challenging prophecy. Before I give you that reason, I need to let you know that many years ago when I was in my early 20s, I was privileged to be invited by an elderly scholar to study with him. Somebody had given him something I wrote. He thought he saw a promise in me, and he reached out to me and said, would you just like to study with me? I'll never will forget when I saw his private library for the first time. His private library was larger than many institutional libraries. I've never known a human being have so many books about the Bible as this scholar did. And so I would study with him once a week. In fact, many of the books in my personal library were gifts that he gave me. But every time we would begin to study, he would always quote the same verse from the book of Revelation chapter 19 and verse 10. And frankly, I got a little tired of it 
because he would quote it in the King James Version, and it's a little obscure, but I, every, every time we would sit down to study, he would quote this. He would say, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, isn't that just a little bit vague? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. But we never sat down to study that he didn't start with that. And after a while, it was like, I wish you would go on to another verse. But after a while, after I really began to understand that verse and what it had to say, I could see why Dr. Moore would say that to me over and over and over. Let me read that statement to you out of our New Living Translation and see if a little light comes on. The Bible says the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. So when we look at the reasons why we study prophecy, like I said, it's interesting. And yeah, it will help you understand the times and what's going on. But God's reason for studying prophecy is so that you will know who Jesus is. Everything about prophecy is to point to Jesus. If you have an accurate prophecy, it'll point to Jesus. If it points to Jesus, it may well be an accurate prophecy. So let me just tell you where we're headed. Let me follow a flight plan for these next two weeks. I'm actually going to preach half a sermon today. And I know that's not homiletically sound, but I need to do it. Because what we're going to do, we're going to explore four verses out of Daniel that scholars will say are the most important four verses of prophecy in your Bible. In fact, the scholar from the last 150 years that I respect the most said these four verses are the spine of Bible prophecy. If you don't understand these, the rest of them won't make sense. And if you get these, then prophecy will be able uh, to, it will make sense in your, in, in your thinking, and you'll be able to organize prophetic thoughts. So today, we're going to begin those four verses, and next weekend, we will continue them. Now, the reason why I feel comfortable drawing a line of demarcation is the first part of these four verses is going to talk about Jesus coming the first time. And I'm going to bring to you a message called, Daniel Sees Jesus 500 Years Early Today. Next week, we're going to be focused on the rise and fall of the last empire. So if you've ever had a question about the Antichrist or the tribulation period or ultimately what God is going to do with this world, we're going to be talking about that next week. So it is a challenge. And let me just say this. You don't have to be brilliant to understand prophecy, but you can't be lazy. You can't like drift in and drift out. It's not like our pop culture you know, short attention span times. If you want to know the future, God's not going to leave it lying around in the street. It's something that you're going to have to apply yourself. So one more time, you don't have to be brilliant, but you can't be lazy. And with that in mind, I'm going to do my best to bring to you what God has shown me through the years out of these four verses. And I know that you will apply yourself I, the, going back to what I said a few moments ago about the primary reason for prophecy being that we can know Jesus, that's not just the primary reason for prophecy. That's the primary reason for the Word of God. You can study the Bible, and if you don't have Jesus, well, it doesn't matter how intellectual you are, you'll miss everything. On the other hand, you, there may be so much in this book that you don't understand, and Lord knows that's where I am. There may be so much in this book that you don't understand. In fact, you could even walk away from today's message saying, I didn't get a whole lot of what Mark had to say. But if you get Jesus, you're going to be fine. This book is about Jesus. In fact, let me just read to you a verse at the end of the Gospel of John in which John has just finished saying that not everything Jesus did is written in the book. He said, if it had been, the world couldn't contain everything that was written, uh, that, was, that he did. But here's what he said. These are written. These words are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's going to be very important today. 
Because always remember this, when you say Jesus Christ, only one of those is a name. One of them is a title and one of them is a name. If someone said President Trump, Trump is a name, president is a title. So when you listen to Jesus Christ being spoken, Jesus is a name, Christ is a title. Christ is a form of the word Messiah, which means anointed one. So what is the Bible saying to us in John chapter 20? These things are written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life through his name. So everything in the Bible, prophecy included, is to point us to Jesus Christ. So with that out of the way, let's get on our horse and ride and look at the first part of these four important verses of prophecy in today's message, which is called Daniel Sees Jesus 500 Years Early. If you were with us in the first week of this message, you know that Daniel was a young Jewish man who was carried away captive into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. And I shared with you that at the beginning of this book, Daniel is about 15 years old. Scholars are a little bit uh, unsure, was he 15 or was he 20, but at least it would give you some idea of what stage of life he was in. He was a late teenager. Daniel is brilliant. He is royal seed. And the Babylonians carried away the best and brightest young people to inculcate in them the Babylonian way of life, their science, their arts, their mathematics. Their goal was to train these young people from conquered nations so that they would be brought into the Babylonian way of life and ultimately become visionaries and missionaries to bring their own peoples into Babylonian thinking. Daniel is brought into that kingdom when he is around 15 to 20 years of age, but Daniel is no longer that age. A lot of years have passed. Nebuchadnezzar, the brilliant mind of the Babylonian empire, is dead. And not only is Nebuchadnezzar out of the way, his successors are gone. It is the first year of Darius, who is a Mede. So the Babylonian empire is finished, and we're now in the Medo-Persian empire. Daniel is around 85 years of age. And Daniel, well, like many of you, Daniel grew up in faith. He, we, we would say he grew up in church. Daniel grew up listening to great preaching. When you get to the end of the Old Testament and you see this lengthy uh, list of prophets who wrote books in the Bible, sometimes it's kind of hard to know how the, chrono uh, the chronology works. Jeremiah would have been in the previous generation. That long book, that wonderful book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah the prophet would have been a preacher in the generation before Daniel. So Daniel would have grown up reading the sermons of Jeremiah, the book that you have in your hands. And Jeremiah had told God's people if they did not cease their idolatry, that God was going to allow them to go into captivity. And Jeremiah, as we saw earlier with prophecy, got very specific. And he said that God's people would be in Babylon for 70 years. Now, you can put two and two together, and you know what Daniel is up to. He's 85 years old. The 70 years have elapsed, and not only that, Babylon is no longer in power, and Daniel wants to know what you and I would want to know if we were in Daniel's shoes, and that is, when can we go home? When can we go back to Jerusalem? When, we, when can we go back to our, our land and our, our people have a sovereign land again? Because after all, Jeremiah said 70 years and you can go home, and Daniel's like, well, 
we're pretty close. Now, somebody could say, well, Mark, if 70 years has gone by, why is Daniel questioning? Because that's what we're going to see in just a moment. If 70 years has gone by, why doesn't he just say, hey, everybody, we're home free. Let's go home. Daniel doesn't know when the clock started running. I mean, he knows they're in the zone, but he doesn't know exactly when it's going to be time to go home. And it's interesting to me that you and I live in similar times. We know we're in the zone of Jesus coming back, but we don't know exactly. So Daniel is praying. Let me read to you, and we're not in the four verses yet that are so big, but let's take a running start at them. We're in Daniel chapter 9 in the first verse. Daniel says, it was the first year of the reign of Darius. I, Daniel, learned from reading the word of the Lord as revealed to Jeremiah that Jerusalem must lie desolate for 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and fasting. Oh Lord, you are great and awesome God. You always keep your promises, but we have sinned and done wrong. We have rebelled against you and scorned your commands and regulations. We refuse to listen to your servants, the prophets. Lord, you're in the right. But as you see, our faces are covered with shame. Oh my God, lean down and listen to me. Open your eyes and see our despair. See how your city, the city that bears your name, lies in ruins. We make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. I don't know if there are any Christ followers listening to me who get something in your head and heart right now to realize you and I need to pray like that for America. Daniel I think Daniel was a wonderful person, but he understood that a lot of people were not going to pray for God's forgiveness. So Daniel intercedes for them. In other words, he prays on their behalf and he says, God, we don't deserve help, but we're asking for help. Well, to that prayer, God gave this answer and he must have blown Daniel's mind because he gave him in response to his prayer the four verses that Bible scholars say are the most important prophetic verses in the Bible, especially in regard to the last days. And so I'm going to read them to you now. So are you ready? Here we go. We're going to read these four verses. You and I will be working on these for the next two weeks. God says to Daniel, a period of 70 sets of seven. Oh, God is going to say it's so much bigger than you think it is, Daniel. You're wanting to know when you can go home and you're asking about 70 years. God is like, it isn't just 70 years. Yeah, you'll be able to go home and seven, you know, you'll be able to go home now. But it's 70 sets of seven. Okay, do the math. That's 490 years. A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the rebellion, to put an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision. That means to fulfill all prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. Now listen and understand. God is like, Daniel, I know you're brilliant, but you're really going to have to apply yourself here. So listen and understand. Seven sets of seven, 49 years, plus 62 sets of seven, 434 years, will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one comes. That is massive. Have you ever heard the word Messiah? We just said it a few moments ago. You know what Messiah means in Aramaic? It means anointed one. Daniel knows who God's talking about here. God's like, Daniel, okay, this is way bigger than you thought. This is not just about you being able to go back to Israel and go back to Jerusalem. Cool, that's going to happen. But Daniel, I got bigger plans. We have a song that we're falling in love with here at New Spring called Bigger Than I Thought. God is bigger than we thought. And, And God is saying to Daniel, I'm way bigger than you think I am. 
because it isn't just 70 years and you can go home. It's 490 years and I'm gonna blow, I'm gonna bring the world back to the way it was meant to be. So this 490 years begins to break up into three sections. 49 years, well, that's real easy because we know when Artaxerxes made the decree that said that the Jews could go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. I could give you the date and the month, but let's just stay with the year. That's 445 BC. So God says to Daniel, okay, 49 years and the city's gonna be rebuilt. 434 years after that, Messiah is coming. Now, do you, do you get, I hope you feel the chills going up and down your spine when you hear that because that's not like God saying, hey, you're gonna get up and go to work in the morning. It's not that kind of prophecy. God is saying 434 years after the city of Jerusalem is rebuilt, that's when Jesus is coming. Now, what's amazing about that is that God oftentimes gives prophecies, but he rarely ever gives a clock. To Daniel, God's giving a clock. He's not only saying what's going to happen, he's saying when it's going to happen. Now, this is key that we understand this. If you go back and look at the way that prophecy was prefaced when God started talking to Daniel, he said 490 years or a period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, let's be clear because we, of course, are a very diverse audience, and many of us are Gentile. It's really, really important that we understand something. This is a promise that God is making to the Jewish people. When God says 490 years are decreed upon your people, God is talking to the Jewish people. And your holy city, that's Jerusalem, just there last week. So it's important for us to understand that these are promises that God has made to his people. Now, it matters to us I mean, first of all, it matters to us because it's God's word. It matters to us because Israel matters to us. But also, it matters to us because God is talking about the Messiah coming, Jesus. So consequently, we have a vested interest, although it's really important that we understand that these four verses are given as prophecies and promises that God has made to Israel. I need to talk about something today that's really important. A lot of people have the idea that all world religions are the same. That's probably about the silliest thing that anybody ever said. And it's always real clear they haven't studied world religions. But I don't even believe in such a thing as religions anyway. The term religion, the concept of religion is just a nomenclature that human beings have invented to codify thought in regard to the belief of a deity, in a deity. For me, there's just truth and falsehood. That's, that's true in any endeavor. It's true for me if we're talking about mathematics or medicine or archaeology or anything else. It's just truth and falsehood. So for me, when I look at religions, I don't even believe they exist. But I will say this. If we were to use the term religion in its, its normally understood context, there is a special relationship between two religions, between Christianity and between Judaism. We have a very special relationship. We have a special relationship because for one thing, we believe in Jehovah God. We have a special relationship in the sense that two thirds of our Bible is, is their Bible. We travel the long way, same way for a long time. We also share in the reality that the ultimate promise that has been made by God is something that we both celebrate and that is the coming of a savior. Christianity, true Christianity, true Christ following, it's not based on adopting a set 
of religious practices. It is in a relationship with a person. It is in the coming of a savior. And to both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, we start with that promise of a savior. Hey, so many of our prophecies about Jesus, in fact, all of the prophecies about his coming in the first time are in the Old Testament. And there are scores of prophecies about Jesus coming. Genesis 3, he would be the seed of a woman. That's where the virgin birth comes from the first time. Numbers 24, a star would be associated with his birth. Uh, Genesis 49, he would be from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Micah chapter 5, he'd be born in Bethlehem. So all these prophecies about the coming of the Messiah are in the Old Testament. So consequently, we travel the same road so long. But we get to a why in the road over a very important issue. And that question is, who is Messiah? And one of the things that I truly enjoy is that God has allowed me the privilege of interacting with a lot of Jewish rabbi friends. And we talk about these things. And our relationship, our friendship is such that we're comfortable talking about what we share together and even comfortable talking about where we find a great difference. Do you know that oftentimes there is a disconnect between leaders of the Jewish faith and Bible-believing pastors? There is a disconnect that doesn't need to exist. And I didn't even know about this until I spent some time with my rabbi friends. It goes something like this. There is this sense, and I don't know how this concept got Birth, but there is this sense that the reason why evangelical Christians tend to support Israel is because we somehow believe that Israel reforming in our times will somehow hasten the coming of Jesus. And I heard that for the first time and I thought, that, that is so wrong. I, I had the privilege of being in the foreign ministry of Israel a couple of weeks ago in the boardroom of the foreign ministry sitting across the table from perhaps the two leading religious scholars in Israel and bringing this up and saying, I have never met, I have never met an evangelical theologian who believes this. But it's caused a disconnect between those of the Jewish, leaders of the Jewish faith and evangelical Christians because there is this sense that somehow we see Israel as a means to our end. That somehow the existence of Israel exists because we somehow want to hurry the return of Jesus. Well, you and I know nothing's going to hurry the return of Jesus. It is true that God has made promise to Is- promises to Israel that he, has kept, he will keep. He has made promises to the church that he, will, that he will keep. And maybe they're correlational, but they're not causal to each other. And it was such an interesting moment. I, 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 I'm not always good with words, but as I sat there, you know, in the boardroom of the foreign ministry and talked to two of the greatest experts of religious law in the Jewish faith, I had the privilege of telling them, we don't feel that way. We believe that God has made promises to Israel that he will keep. He's made promises to us that he will keep. And I believe that with all my heart. And I say this today, and I spend the time talking to you about it, because when God gives us these four verses, there's no getting away from the fact that these are promises that God has made to Israel. Could I just go a step further? If you believe God's word, you will love Israel. I mean, just like any other nation, 
I'm sure there will be things that they do and we do that are wrong and some things that we do that are right. But if you, if you know God, you will love Israel because God is in a covenant relationship with them and he will keep his promises. So when you look at this, this, these verses, this, this statement that 70 sets of seven has been decreed for Israel and for God's holy city, Jerusalem, it is important to realize that God is promising Daniel so much more is going to happen when this 490 years is over. Well, let's read it one more time. There's a list of six things. Just catch these. God says to Daniel, 70 sets of seven, 490 years has been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish rebellion, put an end to sin, to atone for guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. Now, somebody smart is listening to me right now on television or watching online or here in South or North auditoriums. And you're saying, Mark, I have a problem. If Daniel was writing in the late 6th century BC and he's saying in 490 years, God's gonna do all this cool stuff, 490 years is long past. And I don't see, I mean, you could argue that some of those things has already happened. You know, he, God paid for guilt through Jesus on the cross. And, but wow, you sure couldn't say those last three things have happened to bring in everlasting righteousness. You could say it, that's not true in my section of Andover. <laughs> you know? Are to fulfill all prophecy? There's Mark, there's tons of prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And to anoint the Holy of Holies in the new temple, they're talking about that over there. I had a lot of cool conversations with Jewish leaders and Christian, Jewish leaders over in, in Israel about the new temple and when that could be built. But it's very clear it hasn't happened yet. Well, it's important for us to realize this today and then next weekend that those 490 years are broken up into three sections. 49 years, Jerusalem would be rebuilt. 434 years later, Messiah would die. And then that leaves seven years. Now, we'll talk about this next weekend. Let's just briefly set that last seven years aside. It is as if God shut down the clock after Jesus died, and there's still seven years left to go. So that's why not all of these things have happened in our time frame. But it is so key and so important that we understand that Daniel is prophesying the time when the anointed one would come, the one that the Bible is about, Jesus. Now, let me see if I can, I'd love for us just to be able to have a long time to talk about the math here, but we really don't have that. So, if 49 years takes place until Jerusalem is rebuilt and the command to rebuild the city was in 445 BC, that takes us down to 396 BC. So at 396 BC, we know we got 434 years before the Messiah is cut off or dies. That puts us at 38 AD. But someone would say, wait a minute, I know enough about history to know that Jesus died somewhere around the year AD 33, and you are correct. But what is important for us to understand is that in those days, the Jews basically calculated time in lunar years of 360 days. We're, we're familiar with the Julian calendar, 365 days in a year in a leap year. So when you bring in that into your calculations, then that brings the year where God is telling Daniel that Messiah would be killed in 33 A.D., and there are mathematics scholars who get down into the actual day, the, the day of Artaxerxes' decree to the day that Jesus rode into the city, and they work it out even into the date. 
So think about this for a moment. God is saying to Daniel, listen, Daniel, I know you're interested in when you can go home and the 70 years is up, but I got so much more that I'm going to do. I'm going to turn this world right side up in 490 years. And in 483 years from that point where the command is given, Messiah is going to die. Well, as I said a moment ago, Bible-believing Christianity and the Jewish faith have a very special relationship. And we share so many things in common. But we, sh- we have one very big disagreement. And our disagreement comes down to one thing. And that is who is Messiah. I had so many conversations when I was in Israel. And there's so many things that we can talk about. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to who is Messiah. Now, now, the leaders of the Jewish faith believe that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and the Messiah is still coming. I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so when we discuss this, we talk about why we see things so very differently. Do you know really what it comes down to? It all comes down to how Jesus came and how he left. Because for many Jewish theologians, they don't see Jesus being the Messiah because of the way he came into the world. He was not born to a leading rabbi. He was not born to aristocracy. And when he died... He died the death of a criminal. And that's the sticking point. And we look at the fulfillments of prophecy and we look at Jesus and say, there's the Messiah. And they say, no, no, he can't be the Messiah because he died the death of a criminal. And how can Messiah die the death of a criminal? And that's a fair question. One of the greatest Jewish scholars of all times of all time, is a man by the name of Maimonides. He was a scholar, a rabbi, philosopher, brilliant, brilliant mind in the 12th century. And he wrote about what he thought Messiah would be like and what he would do. And when he got to the end of his concept of Messiah, he said this, and I think when I read this, it will help us understand why two great bodies of Bible scholarship come to different conclusions. Maimonides said about this potential Messiah, if he does not succeed fully or is slain, it is obvious he is not the Messiah. So do you understand why two people, two people groups that share so much theology why one group would say, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and the other group would say, no, no, he can't be the Messiah. It's like Maimonides said that if something goes sideways and he gets slain, he obviously cannot be the Messiah. Well, for me, for all of us, and I, don't, I probably shouldn't say this, but I had a chance to have a dinner and a lunch with the leading expert in religion in Israel, and we talked about the book of Daniel. Because he got interested. That's the reason he asked me for the second meeting. He said, hey, can we, can we talk again about this? So we were talking about what you and I are talking about right now. How do we know which is right? How, how do we know if Jesus can't be the Messiah because he got himself killed? 
how do we know if he is the Messiah? Because everything revolves around that. I mean, this is what the Bible said. These things are written that we may know that Jesus is the Messiah and that we may have life in his name. As I shared with my friend in Israel, in Jerusalem last week, it is the Hebrew scriptures who tell, that tell us. It's not some Christian theologian. It's not some Christian scholar. It's not, some, it's not even a New Testament book. I mean, it is a Hebrew scholar. It is a Hebrew book. It is God revealing it to his prophet Daniel. Read it with me. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass. That's 483 years. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to accomplish nothing. That's what the prophet said. That's what God told the prophets. It happened to the very year. And see, it's, it's, it's interesting that in this timetable that God gives Daniel, there's no mention of Jesus' birth. It's the year that he would die. This is what the wise men is all about. You know, every Christmas we talk about the wise men. Why did, they, why did they come? I mean, after all, if you look at how close Bethlehem is to Jerusalem, it is amazing that King Herod didn't go checking Jesus out, and yet you have these Babylonian brilliant minds going halfway across the known world to find this baby following a star. Well, they didn't know the year that Jesus was going to be born, but Daniel left all of his stuff when he was in Babylon 500 years before, and you have these brilliant magi, and they know that Daniel has left them Numbers 24, 17 that said his birth is going to be associated with a star, so they didn't know when he was going to be born, but they were watching. They knew they were in the zone because they could do the math, and they knew he's going to die young, and he's going to die in 33 AD, so consequently, they didn't know when he was going to be born, but when they saw the star, they were off to the race which is why the Bible says when they saw the star. See what I'm saying? God has called this stuff. God has said centuries before it happened, this is going to happen. And God said to Daniel, yeah, it's so much bigger than you think. It's not about you going back, to ba back home to Jerusalem from Babylon because you know even if you do that, people are still going to get sick. They're still going to die and bad things are going to happen. God is saying, I'm telling you, in 490 years, everything is going to be settled because I'm sending the Messiah into the world. Now, you know, he's going to get killed in 483 years and it's going to look like he accomplished nothing, but he's going to accomplish everything. And then the clock is going to stop. And we're in that clock stoppage right now. You say, well, Mike, I don't understand. Why did God say 490 years if there's a 2,000-year break between the 483rd year and the, 490, uh, in the rest of the seven years? Well, I, I'm from Texas, and high school football is, is huge in Texas, you know. I mean, it's serious business. In fact, it's just about the state religion of Texas. And I remember years ago when I was in high school myself, there was a high school playoff game in Texas. And some storm came up in the fourth quarter with about 10 minutes left to go. And lightning was striking and they had to cancel or they had to call the game at that moment and send everybody home. But it was a playoff game. And there had to be a resolution. And so you know what they did? They sent everybody home. They came back the next morning at 10 o'clock, put the players on the field in the spot where they were, 
put the scoreboard up right of where it had been at that moment. And then they began the game again, and those last 10 minutes played out, and the game was over. Now, the strange thing about it was there was a lot of time between when that clock stopped and the clock started up. People went home. They had dinner. They got on with their lives, a lot of normal life. But as far as the game was concerned, it was 60 or 48 minutes as it would have been in those days. It was 48 minutes of uninterrupted football. And that's what God is doing now. God said to Daniel, in 490 years, everything's going to be straightened out. But in 483 years, Messiah's going to die. It's going to look like he accomplished nothing. I'm going to stop the clock. Hey, guess what? That's, how, that's where we come in. God stopped the clock so we could have the church. And we live in that time frame right now. But I'll tell you what, the signs of the time are showing me that God is about to start that clock up again because God has got some very precious, unfinished business with his, with his beloved nation of Israel and with Jerusalem. And God has, some, God has some stuff he wants to accomplish and he will keep every one of his promises. This is a crazy place to stop a sermon. <laughs> We're stopping the sermon halfway through. Will you come back next week? Because we need to know where we're headed. And we're going to talk about the rise and fall of the last empire. Let me say this in conclusion. You know, the reason why Jesus died, appearing to accomplish nothing, was to pay for your sin. The King James Version says he died, but he will die, but not for himself. He died for you and he died for me. I'm so glad that he came, even, even if it doesn't make sense. I'm so glad that he came and was willing to pay the price for our sins so that you and I might have everlasting life. And oh yeah, three days later, he walked out of the grave under his own power and he's coming back again. And if you've never given your life to him, I want, you, I want to encourage you to do it today. You say, Mark, I, I, how can I go to heaven? I, you remember I told you a few moments ago, it's not about a religion. I don't even think religion exists. I don't even, I don't even believe in the existence of any entity called a religion. That's a man-made concept. I believe in the truth. And I believe that God has made a way for you and me, regardless of how broken and how flawed and how much sin we've committed. God has made a way for us to have a relationship with him. Jesus paid for your sins on the cross and he proved he was God by stepping out of the grave under his own power. And anyone regardless of nationality, regardless of where you've been, regardless of what you've done, anyone can come to Jesus Christ and be forgiven and have everlasting life. And all you have to do is ask. It's a gift. So I'm gonna do something right now. I'm gonna pray a prayer that asks and I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna brief, I'm going to put a, a, a gap in between each line so you can decide if you wanna say it to God. Okay, would you pray with me, please? Dear God, I am a sinner. I cannot fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe Jesus is the Savior. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I want Jesus to be my Savior and my King. I believe. Help me to live a different life. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.
You say, Mark, I just prayed. I don't know what happened. Hey, God's on the other end. He's the one who does the heavy lifting. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. If you just pray with me, would you go to any info center, any place on the campus and just say, I pray with Mark. There's a gift box I wanna give you. Or you can also text 97,000 and they'll be ready for you. There's a gift box with a Bible, just like I preached from, a book I wrote and some cool things in there. So thank you for being with me for the first half of this message. Next week, we'll look at the second half. God bless, see you soon.